just to mention, probably unnecessary, uh, a couple of books again today to remind you of the work by Richard Baxter on the Reformed Pastor. I'll be quoting a lot from it this morning. And when you're reading the book, be sure that you read, first of all, the introduction by James Peter Packer, because he will balance him. He will bring us uh, to remember some of the points that Austin was making this morning. He says, Baxter was a big man, big enough to have big faults and make big errors. So it's useful to realize what's, what's wrong about Baxter, but to enjoy this book. And then, obviously, Pastor Martin, you're aware of his first volume. Uh, the second volume is coming out soon. Uh, I suppose almost everybody here is sorry that the second volume wasn't available uh, for this conference. I think I'm the only one who is pleased that it wasn't available because second volume deals ex extremely richly and fully with applicatory preaching and I'd rather not have been speaking on it without having looked at his book first. But we look forward to this very, very much indeed. Our subject this morning, the man. Men of all kinds. Uh, I was thinking this morning of my son-in-law, Warren. I kindly, he asked, I asked him, could he get me some coffee? And he went and got some biscuits and a, a mug of coffee. And then with typical carefulness, he was worrying about where to put the mug of coffee. So I took it from him and said, Warren, don't worry about it. I'll find somewhere safe. Uh, and off he went. And then, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I spilt it over the pages of my address this morning, so there may be some difficulty as I move from page to page. <laughs> We've asked ourselves last year, what is applicatory preaching, and why do we give application, why are we called to it? Yesterday we looked a little bit at how can we preach in an applicatory way, and I want us then this morning to think about the question, who? Who preaches? Who preaches? Does that matter? In a sense, man, no, it doesn't matter. There's a sense in which we can say that the message so transcends the messenger that who he is doesn't matter. John 1.23, he has been asked, who are you? And he says, I am the voice of one crying out. That's all you need to know about me, what I'm saying and what I'm bringing to you. And that's true. And we know that many people have been converted through listening to unconverted preachers. And the Holy Spirit has used the gospel and brought them to faith. And yet, men, in a more fundamental sense, who we are does matter intensely. For God has ordained a link between the messenger and the message. His information isn't computer generated as it comes to mankind, which we're simply reading out to the people and who we are, no interest. 
It's not a postman. Who, who brings post to my door? I don't really mind who it is, whether it's a man or a woman, if I've ever seen them before. If they bring the post, that's all I want. We're not postmen bringing the news to those who receive it. Much about it, the character, the demeanor, the personality, the approach of the preacher can affect profoundly the impact of the preaching for good or for ill. It's part of the persuasion. You remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 verses 3 and 4. We put no obstacle in any way, in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. We don't want to be in the way of the gospel. We don't want to damage it. If anything, we want to be able for God to work through us in that way. So what qualities of man would we look at? Someone who will preach effectively. And this morning I'd like to look at six in no particular order. And there may be many more. But in the time we have, let us look at these. First of all, self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. And that begins with the opposite. Self-consciousness. It is that which cripples many, many, many preachers. Self-consciousness. And it is presented in varying, differing ways. A man may be proud and self-important. That's self-consciousness. A man may be insecure, hungry for for praise, hypersensitive about criticism. That's self-consciousness. A man may be a perfectionist, stressed, guilty. Is this message good enough to bring? Have I made it right? Self-consciousness. A man may be discouraged and feel worthless. Self-consciousness. A man may be intimidated by the people who are listening to him. He may be put back by the occasion that he's in. Self-consciousness. They're all very different. But they're all from the same root. Too much aware of yourself. Whatever ways that comes. And it's a curse. It puffs some men up. It cripples other men. It raises up. It weighs down. It shows men at their worst. It seriously damages the impact of preaching. And usually without realizing it. They themselves are in the way of the gospel, in their own minds. Self-forgetfulness. We are to forget ourselves. And let me suggest two ways in which we may do this. Simple ways. You know them. Firstly, focus on the truth which you're preaching. Focus on the truth which you're preaching. You're talking about the Lord God, the triune God, the God of all eternity, and his grace. You're talking about his chosen people, 
from eternity and their varying needs and need their varying needs you're opening out the gospel and all its richness and its glory men in these huge realities we should surely lose ourself where does it matter how does it stand in all these majestic truths i mean supposing you were preaching on heaven or hell I mean, would you really say am i doing well am i getting on well telling them about heaven and hell is this a good sermon do the people like it ludicrous ludicrous it doesn't matter i think instead of the musician i'm very fond of classical music and you watch a musician playing their instrument they have no care whatsoever about what he or she looks like it's never going into their head they don't think what gestures they're going to make what expressions they're going to have on their face some of them look mad they look insane but they're, they're not they're, they're lost to the music and they're giving the music and they've no idea what they look like or anything about themselves that's how we're to preach the gospel it's the glory and wonder of the thing what i am is really very 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 unimportant c.s lewis has an interesting passage on joy he talks about joy as coming when you forget yourself and when you look back you're able to say that was joy that was joy we're on our way home tomorrow and we sit and think about these last days we say oh lord that was joy perhaps we didn't think about it too much at the time but it was there and that's what lewis is talking about looking back focus on the truth you're preaching and you'll forget yourself and then the second piece of advice face yourself as you really are if you want to forget self face yourself as you really are in the light of christ and it's liberating i know what god has done for me and what i believe he has done for you god has taken me down he's given me a clear true look at myself my corruption and my littleness and my foolishness and the things which i have the sins which i have committed and yet he's chosen me and he's called me and his blood-stained arms are around me and he says ted i have loved you with everlasting love you're my beloved son and in you i'm well pleased i've called you and i've chosen you look at that face yourself and you'll forget yourself you understand first corinthians 4 3 with me paul says it's a small thing that i should be judged by you or any human court in fact i do not even judge myself he's not arrogant he's the reverse when we forget ourselves we don't end up defending ourselves i'm not worth defending 
It's not, it's dismissive. We face up to reality. Although I like praise, I don't need your praise. While I can't ignore your criticism, I'm not, sh I'm not shattered by it, Paul says. For I'm far worse than anybody here can realize. And I know that. And you men know that. And yet I'm far more deeply loved and fully accepted than I can begin to comprehend. And that sets us free. That sets us free to see what matters. It's the paradox. It's only when you forget yourself that you can be yourself. More attractively than ever. Look at little children playing. Perhaps in the house we are staying. Trotting about and happy and so completely unselfconscious. Never for a millisecond do they, have they grown up far enough to start being a little bit selfish. Utterly unselfconscious. One, one writer put it this way, which I quite liked. Self is not a Venetian blind in the way of the gospel. So that you have to turn yourself up so that it vanishes and then the gospel shines out. He goes on, it is a stained glass window through which the gospel shines with something of your color in it. It's a stained glass window through which the gospel shines with something of your color in it. And when you preach the gospel, there's a color. When I preach, it's, it's different, it's different. God's richness and the beautiful shades coming out through the gospel. That's what he's saying. The Scottish writer J.S. Stewart says, it is always thus in every age, ministers of the living Christ are made. A crushing, paralyzing sense of abject worthlessness. And then the man rising to full stature as God's commissioned messenger. When you die to yourself, then you are yourself. That's our first thing. Self-forgetfulness. Secondly, godliness. This verse has been mentioned already. 1 Timothy 4.16 Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. How many of us here remember back to the late 1960s and early 1970s? To hear Al, March, Al Martin preaching on this. In that order, take heed to thyself and to the doctrine. And he preached that in many places. And we all heard it and we were challenged by it. Take heed to thyself and to the doctrine. The minister's heart, one writer says, is the heart of his ministry. And there's a very clear look back right to the Old Testament one, one reference, for example, Ezra 7.10, which I like. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's a lovely order. Study the law, do it, obey it, and then preach it. 
And that's what many or most of us have done and are called to do. The true order. Godliness. It's not just the hypocrisy of inner disobedience. It's character flaws. It's inconsistencies which contradict the message and make our people stumble. Romans 2, 21 and 24. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? The name of God is blasphemed through you. Baxter says, one lordly word has cut the throat of many a sermon. I've preached it, and then afterwards I've said something, I've spoken something about God. Destroyed it, destroyed it. Inner disengagement from the truth. Coolness towards truth. A failure to apply to ourselves the truth we press on others. I said I'd be quoting Baxter. Preach to yourselves first before you preach to the people and with greater zeal. Nothing doth more to make you good preachers than that which doth most to make you good Christians. Oh, what a heinous thing is it in us to study how to disgrace sin and make it as odious in the eyes of our people as we can. And when we have done, to live in it. To, to secretly cherish that which we publicly disgrace. What vile hypocrisy is it to make it our daily work to cry it down and yet keep to it ourselves. We could say much more, but don't we too often live towards these situations? And the converse is true. There is a strange, beautiful, compelling power of holiness. It can be seen. It makes a profound effect. Baxter says, when your minds are in a holy, heavenly frame, your people are likely to partake of fruits of it. Your prayers and praises and doctrine will be sweet and heavenly to them. They will likely feel it when you have been much with God. And men, as you know, and we've experienced throughout our lives, it, ex it explains the effectiveness of some one-talent preachers. Some men who don't have huge gifts. They're not away at the top intellectually. They're not tremendous at self-expression. They don't have public preaching gifts. But they're men who walk with God and have the savour of Christ within them. And when I think of ministers who've been a blessing to me, among them is, are men like that. I don't think they were good preachers. They believed every syllable of it. But they were good lovers in Christ. They took us into our arms and cared for it. R.L. Dabney says, Eloquence may dazzle and please. The holiness of life convinces. Godliness. Thirdly, earnestness. Earnestness. Again, we've been looking in this direction in Scripture. 
2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Be ready. Be on duty. Be at one's task. It means to be on duty. The verb, the Greek verb, be ready. Episthiti. Be on duty. Be at your task. Fix your mind on it. It means being alert, eager, urgent. In season, out of season. Does that need saying? How can we treat our themes in any other way? And yet as we look to and listen to some men, we can't help wondering, are you really interested in this? Are you excited by it? What does it mean to you? Would you die for this truth that you're saying? Listen to Baxter again. Most ministers, sad, sad, most ministers will not so much as exert their voice or stir themselves up to an earnest utterance. It is a, it is a kind of contempt of great things, especially of so great things that we speak of them without much affection or fervency. Then he says, it is the manner as well as the words which sets it forth. C.H. Spurgeon, to stand, you know this quote, to stand and drone out a sermon in a kind of articulate snoring to people who are somewhere between awake and asleep must be wretched work. <laughs> and it is wretched, wretched work. That's why preaching is powerless. That's why. Baxter again. Men will not cast away their dearest pleasures upon the drowsy request of one that seemeth not to mean as he speaks or to care much whether his request be granted. My Oxford Dictionary tells me that enthusiasm means an absorbing or controlling possession of the mind by any interest or pursuit, literally possessed by God. Earnest, possessed by God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, through us, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is the most important truth. Earnestness. But let me make several qualifications of earnestness. Firstly, it must be genuine earnestness. There's nothing easier to counterfeit than feigned fervency. Pretending to care and be fervent. It impresses gullible people, but it alienates most people. They know it's a fake. They know you're doing a performance. We're all to be careful. It's too easy to put it on as we enter the pulpit, as I'm coming out of the room and going into getting myself going. It has to be born in the quiet place to be real. Genuine earnestness. Secondly, natural earnestness. Natural earnestness. 
be yourself. Each of us is to be earnest in his own way. Some of us will be, will be louder than usual. Some of us will be quieter than usual. Some of us will say a lot. Others of us who are especially earnest will say very little. Some of us will be excited. Others will be calm. But each one true to himself, true to his own personality. 30, 40 years ago in England, a lot of young men pretended they were Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so when they were standing up, they tried to imitate Dr. Lloyd-Jones. It was ludicrous. And I don't want to criticize America, but I have seen uh, some men trying to be uh, Pastor Martin. Not just learning from him, but almost that's the way you do it. And it's fake, it's wrong. Genuine earnestness, natural earnestness. Thirdly, controlled, controlled earnestness. In preaching men, we shouldn't begin the sermon too earnestly. It's easy to do that. You've been studying it all week. You've been praying it over. You've been captured by the truth. And now it's the moment to preach the truth and you are ready. But your people aren't ready. They're sitting there. They haven't been prepared all week. They haven't got up the early in the morning of the Lord's Day, most of them. You've got to give them time. You need, as a sense, to, to allow them to warm up. And so I don't think we should regularly start with just an intense blast of earnestness. I think we've got to, by God's grace, bring them to it. Bring them to it. Don't lose control. Because you'll arouse the pity, the contempt of your hearers. I remember one of our ministers, Dr. Hugh Blair, a wonderful preacher. I loved listening to him. And he very, very, very occasionally, he would wobble in his voice and tears would come into his eyes. He hardly ever did it. But I remember him doing it. And looking at it, and we were touched in our hearts. We knew, we knew this is a very, very important truth that this man is bringing across to us. It may spill over, but we are to be the spirits, we are to know of the spirits of the prophets, subject to the prophets. We are to be earnest in everything, but we are to be earnest in a practical, controlled way. Like a river in a narrow channel, it's better controlled. It's more fruitful than a river spreading all over everywhere. And then finally, constructive earnestness. Preach the word with complete patience and teaching. John Calvin comments, exhortations and accusations can be no more than aids to teaching, and without it, have little force. Here he goes on. Good, he speaks about good men, but they have insufficient learning and too much emotional fervor. Insufficient learning, but too much 
emotional fervor. They get very, very excited and moved. And Calvin's not condemning that, but he says they don't really know what they're saying or want to say. They haven't done enough study. So men, genuine, natural, restricted earnestness. As we seek this and pray for it, we will find that our hearers can't help being touched. Fourthly, tenderness. Tenderness. We're fathers to our people. We're shepherds to our people. Some preachers are hard, authoritarian. They're bullies. They attract spiritual masochists. But people get bruised and battered and they shrink away. Stuart Elliott had a name that was given to him when he was a young man. And I know that Bill and I will find it hard to believe this. Bill maybe knows it better than I do. He was called the whip. That's how his hearers described him. Because there was a force and a fierceness. He was bitterly sorry for that. Stuart Elliott you heard later. The whip. Nothing like him. Calvin says severity must be seasoned with gentleness that it may be known to spring from a peaceful heart. Sincerity, severity, may be known to spring from a peaceful heart. Second Timothy 4.2 Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. The Greek word means long-suffering. That's how it's to be. And the older I come, become men, the greater God's tenderness and patience with me strikes me. How many times we come to him with the same mistakes, the same sins, the same errors, hundreds of times, thousands of times, back and back again for his tender forgiveness. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth We need to be pers- we need to persist We need to be gentle in bringing unwelcome words to difficult people. Exhort, says Paul, with complete patience. Calvin says, severity must be seasoned with gentleness that it may be shown to spring from a peaceful heart. I have a lot of quotations here this morning, but I thought maybe I felt I didn't have anything to say myself so we could hear other people. Here's Patrick Fairburn. I don't know how often I've preached, I've quoted him, and this is quite a long quotation. It comes from the introduction to his commentary on the pastoral epistles. 
all faithful ministers must know how to reprove and admonish as well as to, to, to win, to exhort, as well, to, as well as to encourage. But it is of unspeakable importance for the success of their mission that when those severer methods have been resorted to, all should be done in a gentle and patient spirit, continuing at the work in forbearing, steady, peaceful manner. The more anyone can carry on his ministerial work in such a spirit, the more is conviction likely to take hold of his hearers, that he really seeks their good. Whereas, if he should but mock their follies, fiercely denounce their sins, or flare up in passion at their opposition, it is next to certain that no progress will be made. Prejudice will be created against the work of ministry. So, so Fairburn is saying that when you have to rebuke, when you have to be sharp, then especially your heart has to be filled with tender love. Man, do you remember the first time in your ministry when you knew you were having to go to the house of one of your members and speak about something really wrong and serious? Do you remember praying about it? Do you remember driving along in the car and feeling for it? Lord, Lord, please, please help me. Please not, don't let me get angry. Please help me to be patient. Please help me not to break down, so on and so forth. Brian Chapel, in his work, Christ-centered Christ preaching, says preachers who cannot tell the people what the Bible requires and still love them will ultimately fail to do God's will in the pulpit. Application that remains strong and steady week after week arises from a mind fixed on God and from a heart that breaks for broken people in a fallen world. Most of us here are fathers. When did you last smack your child, some particular child? They had told a, a serious lie. They were eight or nine. You, you were surprised they would do that at that age. And you smacked them. How did you do it? How did you feel when you were doing it? Was your child crying? Were you crying? I'm sure you were. And you spend the rest of the day upset. Upset regarding it. You're praying, dear Lord, please keep him from doing that again. Please come to him. I don't want to have to smack him again. You feel it. Baxter says, when the people see that you unfeignedly love them, they will hear anything and bear anything from you. When your people see that you unfeignedly love them. That brings us fifthly to fearlessness. To fearlessness. I hadn't, when I wrote these words, I hadn't known what Bill Hughes was going to be say yet, 
going to say yesterday evening. Fearlessness is inevitably needed. Joel Beakey writes, Applicatory preaching is often costly preaching. When John the Baptist preached generally, Herod heard him gladly. But when John applied his preaching particularly, he lost his head. There it is. There it is. The directory to public worship says, speaks of preaching as a work of great difficulty to himself, requiring much prudence, zeal, and meditation, and to the natural man, very unpleasant. We heard about that again this morning. Before Paul ends his counsel on preaching to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he calls on him in verse 5 to endure the suffering. That is, suffer evil. Now, in general, Paul means suffering of all kinds. But I think in 2 Timothy, he's especially directing it towards witness and preaching. You get it a number of times. Chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel. That's what the suffering's for. Chapter 2, verse 3. What you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Suffering in preaching. Chapter 2, verse 9. My gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains. So it's suffering from preaching the word, and especially, men, when we're applying the word. I don't know where this American quote came from. Some of you may have answers. Somebody in a church saying to a friend, the pastor has stopped preaching and gone to meddling. And that was application of the word. Preaching's general, meddling is, is touching me in my heart by application. Application can disrupt people's lives so that they need to do things differently. And we have to have courage to pay the price of bringing these words to them that they don't want to hear and are going to be upset by it. It's probably never the case that our listeners were enraged and wanted to kill them. Acts 5.33. We don't want that to happen. But too often, there's something wrong somewhere. And if we don't deal with it, if we don't seek to lift it out, our people are going to be ruined. How often is it said about our preaching, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Acts 2.37. It's a hammer that we're using. It's a sword that we're using. And these were going to hurt people. And we should have a sense of fearlessness as we take it into our hands. I've got to use this. I've got to use it truly. I've got to use it carefully. I've got to use it guided by God. A writer I don't know, but uh, I enjoyed what he was saying, Bruce Thielman. He says, to preach, to really preach, 
is to die naked a little while at a time and to know each time you do it that you must do it again. You must do it again. And with our people, it's so that they will feel the pain of lostness. And we need to feel that as we preach. The pain of their disobedience. The pain at their lack of response. It costs us. It costs us. And we need to pray for one another. That we may preach in living, with, living, with loving fearlessness. And then the last, and of course, the most important matter. Unction. Unction. Older writers have much to say about unction. Doubtless they experienced it much more than in our present generation. One writer says it's like falling in love. It's hard to define, but you know what it is when it happens. You know what it is when it happens. There's an anointing, anointing of the Spirit upon the preacher. That's what the unction means. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, It is the Holy Spirit falling upon the preacher in a special manner. It is an access of power. It is God giving power and enabling through the Spirit to the preacher in order that he may do this work in a manner that lifts it beyond efforts and endeavors of man to a position in which the preacher is being used by the Spirit and the preacher becomes a channel through whom the Spirit works. Unction. A very, very marvelous and wonderful experience. It's not unctuousness. That's a different word altogether. It means oiliness. Too many people are good at oiliness, a ministerial voice and a pious appearance. Good welcome, dear brothers. Good to see you today. (laughs) I quoted, uh, I mentioned David Copperfield yesterday. Well, Uriah Heap in David Copperfield comes to young David and says, I am a very humble person, Master Copperfield. I am well aware that I am the humblest person going. My mother is likewise a very humble person. We live in a numble abode, Master Copperfield, but I have much to be thankful for. A numble person. Now, we can, it can impress naive people, but it's disgusting. It's, it's, it turns people away altogether. True unction can't be forced. True unction can't be compelled. True unction can't be produced. Earnest men may try to have it, but the result is phony. You remember John 3, 8, the wind blows where it pleases. God guides where the Spirit is going. And I'm not overstating this, man. It's not indispensable for effective preaching. The word we preach is living and powerful, and it lives and it works from day to day and week to week. And whether we sense it or not, We have the confidence, Lord, I was preaching your loving, your powerful word in truth, and I leave it with you, and I'm confident that your spirit will use it. The spirit often works as we struggle. He often works as we labor. 
He speaks out words that seem dead to people who don't want to listen. But unction is greatly to be desired. C.S. Lewis, C.H. Spurgeon, sorry, C.H. Spurgeon calls it unreal but touching. I don't know if I like this quotation from Spurgeon or not, but I'll, 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 I'll give it to you and you can decide whether it's, it strikes me in a way as a bit silly. So I shouldn't be giving it to you, but this is it. If I were to be forgiven to enter heaven, but were permitted to select my state for all eternity, that's a silly bit, I should choose to be as I sometimes feel in preaching the gospel. My mind shut out from all disturbing influences, adorning, adoring the majestic and consciously present God, every faculty aroused and excited to its utmost capability, all thoughts and prayers of the soul joyously occupied in contemplating the glory of the Lord, and all the while the purest conceivable benevolence towards one fellow creatures, urging the heart to plead with them on God's behalf. What state of mind can rival this? So leaving the first, it's, it's, it's the most wonderful state of mind on earth, surely. There's nothing like it. Have you ever experienced it? Almost always, it's marked, I think, by an intense quiet stillness, the sense of God. We feel as if we're living intensely, an electric current going back and forward between us and the people. There's someone in there. He's telling me what to say and he's speaking to them. I know it. And the people are awed. They're gentle. They're almost frightened. But they're not frightened. I like the silly quotation from the, the children's book, Wind in the Willows. It's the rat and the mole. Two friends, the rat and the mole. And they're traveling on. Suddenly a great light appears. It's some, uh, some uh, great god or something in the time. And uh, rat's, uh, mole says, rat, are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable joy and love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, O oh mole, I am afraid. I am afraid. See him. We love him. We know how good he is. And yet with it. There's a godly, God-honoring. Fear's the wrong word, but it's in us. There are men who don't expect this, who don't know enough to want it. They don't miss it. They don't pray for it. We feel sorry for them. When you've experienced it, you want it again and again. Plead for it. Can't be satisfied without it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Can I take a little bit more time than I planned? I, I've done what I don't think I've ever done before, 
I'm going to read to you a bit of my, not a diary, but a thing that I wanted to write down so that I wouldn't ever forget it. And I do it, men, on one condition, that you know that in no way am I sending anything good to myself or thinking anything other than thankfulness to God. Please remember that. It happened to me the greatest preaching night of my life ever. In Bryan College, Dayton, Dayton, Tennessee, on the 2nd of July, 1997, I was preaching at a family conference, and I was preaching on hell. And one night I was preaching, it was the third evening, and I've written down afterwards, I was preaching a sermon on what hell will be like. Obviously the most solemn subject you can ever imagine. I felt helped during preaching and felt increasingly helped as I preached on. I realized the people were very, very quiet. Then I finished. I had preached for a long time, longer than I'd planned, and then I sat down. And everyone just sat. Nobody moved. Not a sound. Not a voice. The beloved chairman just sat beside me. We sat there. Probably only for three or four minutes. It seemed like an eternity to me. There were a lot of things that had been planned for that evening. Charles Fortner was the chairman that evening. And he said, I think, friends, we just cancel everything and we'll go and seek God. It took Lorna and me about half an hour to get to the door of the place because people were talking to us. As I got to the door of the auditorium, a man said, would you come into this room? We went in and there were about 30 parents there praying for their children and weeping, weeping and weeping for their children's salvation. So we prayed with them. I don't know how long it was. And then we got onto the campus, a lovely green campus, trees, lights here and there. And there were people all over the grass, some people down on their knees on their own, people with their arms around each other. There were little groups praying all over the place. There was a group of young people who stayed up most of the night praying. There were fellows and girls ringing each other, ringing their brothers and sisters on the other side of America, urging them to get right with God. I have no idea how many people were converted that evening. Dozens and dozens. I'm still meeting people. My son was converted. My daughter was converted that night, they say. I've preached that sermon again and again, and nothing has happened. Well, I shouldn't say nothing happened. Nothing out of the ordinary happened. In fact, when I preached it in my own congregation, that's what I was expecting. This is a winner here. Something's going to happen. And I thought it was a fairly flat, disappointing evening. It was a sovereign visitation of Almighty God. I preached the next night at the conference, the last night, and in the 
cafeteria cafeteria in the cafeteria queue. I was standing and a young a couple of young people were in front of me waiting for our evening meal before the service and they didn't realize I was there. And one said, well, if he was like that last night, what's he going to be like tonight? And I thought, no, no, that no, no was right. Nothing, nothing. God does not give his glory to anybody else but himself. But I tell you, man, it makes you hungry for it. It makes you hungry for it. It's God doing, God acting, and God, just in a minute, bringing scores of people into the kingdom, soundly converted. I say to you, man, let us plead for it. Let us plead for it. That's what we need. Dear brethren, let us plead for it. Ask your people to pray for it. Do all you can to hoist the sail. This is applicatory preaching. Jacob, in dreaming, saw a ladder reaching heaven, and the angels were ascending and descending, and the Lord was standing above it, speaking to him. And he, and he Jacob, was afraid. And he said, how awesome is that place, is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And I pray, men, that we will be able to say that more and more in our own places. Amen. Let me just do a word of prayer. Dear Lord. Dear Father, we just don't know what to say. You're our Father. We love you. We love people. More and more we're loving the lost. And you put us on the earth. And you've given us through the gospel. You brought us here this week to be together, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another. Thank you for your presence throughout this morning. Pray, O oh God, for the prayer this evening. And we pray for Jeff tomorrow that you'll uphold him. Dear Father, send us back to our places, hoping and praying and yearning for you and your grace to work more and more and to bring many to salvation through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.